thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. All righty then, 28 minutes to 10 o'clock. Good morning to you, Chris. Morning. Did you say that uh, Thomas makes your... What did you say? I was eavesdropping on your conversation oh, with Thomas. Oh, that was a private moment between oh, me and Thomas. No, I was saying, <laughs> when I hear him come on and say, Hi, Chris, um, how are you today? It makes me makes me smile, because I can picture him sitting there with his very large can of fizzy drink, lots of calories. <laughs> and then he shocked me this morning because he said, And I'm eating oats. And I said, this is rather incongruous with your usual lifestyle, Thomas. It sounds like a positively say, healthy option. <laughs> I was about to say that he did deserves a tick today because he's eating jamelos. But Chris, I was very hungry this morning. I was too I was too late to have breakfast. So I thought I'd share his oats. You know how much sugar he put in there? <laughs> oh, oh okay. Right. Now it's now it sounds about about right. That's the Thomas I know and love, yeah. And full cream milk. Full cream milk and lots and lots of sugar. It tastes like dessert. It tastes like breakfast, lunch, and dinner rolled into one in terms of calories by the sound of it. Yes, I think he's a medical miracle, actually. I was just saying, um, I think we need him as a study subject to work out how an individual, a human, can consume as many calories as that and not get fat. Just make sure you feed him afterwards. He'll agree to that study. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I've got an interesting question here from Buleng, and yes, I've often wondered about this myself. She asks, I'd like to know why one feels like one's tongue, gums, lips, and cheeks are swollen after one has received local anesthetic at the dentist, even though there's no swelling. Okay, I've never been asked that before, and I've never really thought of it. Mm. I Actually, uh, thinking back, I, I had to have some teeth taken out when I had my milk teeth. I still had loads of milk teeth when I was about 14. Mm. And uh, so the dentist said, well, I'll have to have some of these out because um, it's going to discourage the other stuff from coming through. Ended up with no teeth for ages. But um, yes, you're right. It does feel rather strange. I think it's probably because of, of the way um, that we normally have signals coming in from all different parts of the body telling us where the different bits of our tissues are in relation to each other. And I think that the brain compares the signals from one part of the body and the signals from the other part of the body that think they know where that first part of the body is. And you subtract one from the other and, and have a coherent picture in your mind of where all the, the parts of your body are. And if there's no signal coming in from one region, then you only get half the signal, the, the other bits of the body saying where they think the thing is, and there's nothing coming from the structure itself. And I think that leads to a sort of disparity in your mind's eye of the the internal model you build of of your body in space so it makes the thing feel much bigger than it really is another weird illusion and this happens to some people but not everyone maybe everyone can try this okay if you take your if you run your tongue along your teeth in the front of your mouth and they they you can feel the gap between the upper and lower jaw just try that with me so far mm-hmm. yeah mm -hmm. now turn your tongue so that it's sideways 
Okay. So that effectively your tongue is, is pointing at uh, 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock rather than 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock. And repeat that. Run your tongue up and down your teeth. Now, some people say that they experience the sensation in their mind's eye of their teeth now being vertical. Ah. Uh-uh. <laughs> Mm, definitely happens to me. <laughs> it feels like my teeth have turned through 90 degrees and they're now going up down rather than left right. I bet you if we ask people, text us <laughs> if you are experiencing or you can tweet at Naked Scientist, tell us and we'll top them up if you get the, the teeth vertical funny sensation in your mind's eye. I, th I think that's part of the same phenomenon. Oh, no, you know, Chris, now I'm not going to concentrate as I try to achieve this before we wrap up the show. Look what you've started. Okay, let's go to Peter in Centurion. Hi. Hi, ready? Keep it okay. Hi, Peter. Fine, things. I'm fine, things. I just wanted to question, Chris. We're watching a video where they said almost everything that we eat is for tapeworms, especially sushi and, you know, for tapeworms. Mm -hmm. What is the story with tapeworms and, and, and the prevalence of people to, 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 to catch? Okay. Tapeworms. Yeah. So, so are they in everything we eat and how do they get into your body? Okay. Uh, Chris? Hi, Peter. I, I sincerely hope they're not in everything we eat. And the fact is that um, the vast majority of populations of countries that have good quality food and hygiene, the prevalence is lower in very, very poor countries where people tend to have poor access to clean water and clean food, then obviously the rates go up. So it depends on where you live very much. Um, the way these worms work, there's a whole range of different parasitic worms. Um, there are worms which actually burrow through your skin. So these hookworms that... Um, latch onto the intestine and drink blood. They're slightly different from tapeworms. They live in the environment. So you shed those worms in feces. They sit in the environment. And then when someone comes along, uh, the worms can sense that there is someone nearby. They activate, latch onto the skin, drill through the skin, go up to the lungs, mature in the lungs, get coughed up, get swallowed, latch onto the inside of your intestine and drink your blood. Those are a different kind of worm, a hookworm. There are roundworms and tapeworms. The tapeworms are interesting because like, they are like a tape and they can be metres and metres long and they're segmented and each of the segments has got a, an individual like a uterus which makes uh, progeny and the worm detaches these segments and they go off and then they land in the environment and then if you pick up one of those those sets of eggs you can, you can bring them into your body. Um, other worms do other nasty strategies where they make your bum itch uh, mm -hmm. and they lay uh, eggs around your bum. So usually when you're sleeping you scratch your bum to alleviate the itch pick up the eggs under your fingernails and then in the morning when you get up and sort of scratch your nose and lick your lips and pick your teeth the eggs go back in and you auto infect which is not terribly nice but <laughs> in terms of actually what you can pick up from food mm, depends on where you get your food from and i mean one of the other things to bear in mind is is the bug toxoplasmosis now this is not a worm it's another kind of parasite that's actually uh, involved with cats but uh, you can get cysts of that in food and if you don't cook your meat properly you can pick up toxoplasmosis mm. and this causes a sort of flu-like illness so the answer is cook your meat properly and get it from a reputable source yeah, Peter, stay away from uh, those uncooked meats and so on. But, uh, uh, Chris, is it true, then, that uh, tapeworms are more prevalent in your un uncooked meal, uh, uh, meats, especially pork, if it's not cooked properly? That's what I, I learned at school. Well, um, you can definitely get more parasites in meat that is ill-prepared and ill-kept. And if you cook it properly, you should deactivate 
the infectious forms and these these forms that can get into the meat in sort of cysts and then get into you for various parasites and so the rule is you should always cook these meats properly pork is a good one um if you cook that properly you you will get rid of the parasite burden but you you mustn't eat um meat that's undercooked anyway it's a good idea to have it well cooked because that will stop the risk okay let's go to judy in midrand hi there judy hi chris um, I was watching a program on London taxi drivers that a certain part of their brain is enlarged because they have to learn all the streets. If they move to a GPS system, will that part of the brain atrophy? Wow, that's a brilliant mm. question, Judy. Um, and in fact, the lady who did that study, her name is Eleanor Maguire. She's a researcher funded by the Wellcome Trust at University College London. And I was speaking with her just the other day, funnily enough, because you're right. She did this amazing study uh, more than 10 years ago now where we know that the brain seems to be able to respond and change its structure in response to our experience and so she wondered if you take a group of individuals who have to do a very intensive navigational learning task like learning 25,000 streets of London and then you look at their brains will they have a bigger part of the brain that's concerned with navigation this being a, a structure called the hippocampus and sure enough when she looked she found that people who had successfully passed the knowledge which is the exam that taxi drivers have to do do have a much bigger hippocampus volume compared with an average person selected at random from the population but the big question was do people who pass the knowledge just have a bigger hippocampus to start with or does it become bigger in the course of doing the knowledge and she recently returned to this subject and published the definitive results of a study in which they answered that question it was in the journal current biology around about last christmas and they took taxi drivers scanned them before they did this knowledge then they followed them up as they did all of the learning tasks and learned the maps of london and then they rescanned them again at the end of having passed the knowledge and they found a very significant increase not universally and uniformly through this hippocampus structure but in just one part of the hippocampus the part that does coincide with learning how landmarks relate to each other in spatial uh, orientation and, and position so her argument is that this is the brain adapting to the pressure of having to learn these things mm -hmm. but uh, were they to then go and go somewhere else they would have to obviously start from scratch learning these landmarks again but i think the argument would be if you were to have to try and learn things if you already have a map which or a part of the brain organized to learn maps very well i think it would probably facilitate taking on board uh, those maps over and above someone who was starting from scratch but then again there's another question there which is would do people who successfully pass the knowledge and grow their brain in this way are they equipped with a brain that's capable of, a, of, a, of endowing itself with a better mental map to start with so it doesn't really get us any closer to the answer but i, th I think they probably would would find it easier to learn regardless brilliant question judy thank you very much kw andrew dakalani stay on the line i'm coming to you right after this the Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clappy. And it is quarter to ten. We are taking your questions. 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Let's go to Andrew in Brooklyn. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Ah, it's a, it, a straightforward question. Um, in our solar system between Mars and Jupiter... We have the asteroid belt. Now, 
Um, we have been told and we read that uh, a sun or a solar system to be formed, it forms out of a cloud of dust. Now, that kind of dust, does it contain like uh, asteroid belts we have uh, in our solar system uh, of uh, asteroids from 300 kilometers to 1,000 kilometers long? Hmm. Hello, Andrew. Um, Hi there. You are absolutely right that sitting between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter is a big aggregation of material which range in size from tiny specks and pebbles right up to enormous bodies which are hundreds of kilometres and in one case series maybe a thousand plus kilometres across. And some of those bodies have been there and will remain there indefinitely. Others have been dislodged and have interacted with the Earth in the past and probably wiped out the dinosaurs about uh, 60 million years ago. Uh, we know from models that people have done that various resonances, nudges from other solar system uh, objects, including the giant planets, have dislodged some of these objects and also the pressure of sunlight falling on them has given them a nudge and caused some of them to move out of the asteroid belt. In fact, there was a paper in Nature a few years ago by a guy called Bill Botkey um, in which he found that you could trace back some of the impactors that probably did away with the dinosaurs to objects that were out there beyond Mars back in history. Um, in terms of where they come from, we think, or our current models of how the solar system forms, is along the lines that you suggested. So you have a very big object in the centre, a proto-star, which is going to form, in, the, in our case, the Sun, and around that is a disk of material called a protoplanetary disk. And because of a conservation of angular momentum and various equations, this goes from being a, a big shroud around the protostar to a flat disk around its equator, a bit like the rings of Saturn, and under the influence of gravity and time, particles in that disk slowly begin to coalesce or attract one another, and they aggregate and accrete. And you initially form little bundles of material, which are planetesimals, and then they become more gravitationally active because they're bigger, they attract other material, and you have bigger and bigger bodies, and eventually you end up with the situation we have now, which is you have rocky worlds in closer to the sun, and we have gas giants out further in the orbits around Saturn and Neptune, and Uranus and so on. And between Mars and Jupiter, there is all this debris, which some people suggest is a failed planet, effectively it's material that never managed, because of various gravitational reasons, to accrete into a planet in its own right, and it has remained as, as a mixture of the dust and debris from which actually the rest of the bodies in the solar system were made. Thank you very much, Andrew. Does that thank answer you your very question? Much. Very thank interesting. You. Thank bye you. Bye. Lovely. And uh, Dakalani, oh, thank you. You've been so patient. In Johannesburg, hi. Hi, Rudy and Chris. Mm. Uh, Chris, I just want to know, why is it usually the lower lip which gets chipped? Oh, yeah, it's true. Oh, it yeah. is, eh? Hello, Dagelani. I, I can identify with that one, I tell you. Um, I, I think, well, in my case, I'm certainly a sort of chap lip type person. I suspect it's probably because it does more moving than the upper lip, and therefore, if it's doing a bit more moving and is slightly more prominent, um, it probably has a bigger surface area. Therefore, if it's got a bigger surface area, it's got a bigger area to get chaps on it. So, a, a combination probably of more movement and, and a bigger surface area, I'd mm. guess, but 
but I, I don't know for sure. I'm and guessing. you're more likely to bite your lower tongue than your upper. I'm trying to bite my upper. I've got all these interesting uh, experiments today oh, with that's the a tongue good idea. and the teeth. I hadn't thought of that. I'm, mm. I'm not able to bite my top lip at the bottom. Mm, I do that very well. Thanks, Takalani. <laughs> Thank you. Let's go to, is it KW in Panorama? Yes. Okay. Can you speak yes. up, please? Your question. Yes. Hello. Good morning, lady. I'm a pirate. Oh. And good morning to Chris. Welcome. Yes. Yes. I want to know from Chris, uh, early morning, about five, six o'clock in the morning, the birds chirp. Do they, what do they speak to one another? I'm referring to the small birds. <laughs> yes. The dawn chorus. Yeah. Or when I was staying in a, a hostel, I was in Australia in Queensland and my brother had come to stay and m- my wife's best friend had come to stay and we were staying in this hotel in North Queensland, sleeping soundly and then suddenly there was a n- very noisy bodily function from my brother's side of the room. And then another one and uh, <laughs> it was obvious what was going on and uh, and this this friend of my wife suddenly sat up and said it's so lovely to be woken to the sound of the dawn chorus. Um, it wasn't the kind of bird singing chorus that she had in mind there. <laughs> um, why birds do this? Well, it, it's, as you say, it's singing, it's a form of communication. Birds, we communicate by talking to each other, birds communicate to each other by singing. They're announcing their territory, they're announcing uh, their relationship to each other, they're telling each other they're around, they all watch each other, they learn from each other, they detect danger by listening to the calls of other birds and, and their, their close mates. And so, when they all wake up together, then they all sing together, and it's it's actually pretty pretty much linked to the time of day yes um there are various studies that have been done showing that if you put street lights out uh you can disturb the normal rhythms of birds and they actually wake up earlier birds in towns they've found wake up at an earlier time and start singing than birds in the countryside because in towns there's more artificial light and it fools the birds body clocks into thinking it's time to wake up and they're just programmed to make an early start of it each day unfortunately when i was in aberdeen last week when i spoke to you from there up in the, the north of scotland uh, seagulls would come and, and make the most enormous racket sitting on my windowsill every morning uh, and the noise was tremendous at five o'clock in the morning every day until the last day they seem to take saturday off <laughs> no no i was about to say chris they seem to be particularly active maybe it's because during the week when they wake up and start calling each other i'm out of the house i, I get up quite early quarter past oh, four that must be but it then. on saturday mornings that is when i sleep in until about seven but no it never happens because as sure as sunrise at 10 to 5 5 o'clock <laughs> it's the hardy does in my yard on my roof all over the trees at five i even tweeted about it just last week i said will you bloody shut it does please shut up i want to sleep <laughs> it's ironic that you tweeted about it though isn't it <laughs> just uh, six days ago because i really wanted to sleep but they just decided they own the territory and uh that's it let's go to mihai in montana hi hi how are you fine thank you all right thank you i'd like to comment something on on the on the space stations and, and the meteorites yeah or rather asteroids um it is absolutely funny how we humans go and create these uh, space stations with direct raw material from Earth and put it all the way up on high-level uh, rockets. It's very economically expensive and environmentally. My thought is to capture one of these uh, 500 meters asteroids and simply bury and, and um, uh, drill into it and create tunnels and then uh, insulate it and then use it as a space station. The maintenance factor wouldn't be, have to be uh, considered because it's just a big lump of rock. Also, uh, the astronauts would be protected from uh, the radiations. 
What do you think of that suggestion, Chris? I think you should write to NASA. That's a great idea. Um, <laughs> the only thing is, Mihai, and, and it is a good idea, it's a good suggestion, the only problem is that the asteroids are not where we want them to be. Um, the space station is just, a f uh, effectively in space terms, uh, a gnat's whisker away from the surface of the Earth, whereas the asteroids are out beyond Mars. So, in order to get one and bring it back here so we had it conveniently near to Earth, in other words, like a second surrogate moon, uh, we would have to go out there beyond the orbit of Mars, which is about a three-year space journey, you get one, persuade it to come back with us, and then put it safely somewhere near the Earth where we could keep it. Uh, then you've got the mining equipment. How do you actually drill into it in the first place, well that would take quite a lot of equipment and energy, you've got to get that up there. So all told, there's no simple way of doing this, but you raise a really important point, which is that it costs enormous amounts of money for every just simple kilogram of material that we take from Earth up into space, and in order to circumvent this problem, some people are suggesting that were we to build some kind of base on the Moon, then we could use the raw materials that are on the moon to build at least a proportion of the things we needed and also we'd be launching other craft then from the moon rather than from the earth and because the moon is smaller than the earth you don't have such a high escape velocity you don't have to give a spacecraft such a big push to get off the moon as you do from the earth and this could save us some energy in the long in the long run but again there's enormous amounts of infrastructure cost in the first place to set something up like that but it is a very important consideration that you've raised mm -hmm. and and one that i think that people are looking seriously at okay. certainly for the future all right mihai write to nasa and when you become famous don't forget where it all started somebody wants yeah. to know chris if you believe in ufos um difficult one that because uh you know what's speculation and what's reality but what i absolutely believe is that we are not alone in the universe um the current estimates for how many stars there are in the universe is something like 10 to the 22 a sextillion stars so in other words there are in the milky way just our cosmic neighborhood the milky way's got a couple of hundred billion stars in it and we think there's a couple of hundred billion galaxies and each of those galaxies with a couple of hundred billion stars has got 10 or so planets around each star on average so in other words the numbers of opportunities or possibilities for having another earth-like planet or a place where life could get started i think it's almost inevitable so it's almost certain that there is uh, other forms of life out there somewhere we just haven't come across them yet mm -hmm. um whether or not they've taken the opportunity to come visit us um, don't know for sure uh, and it might be that they know about us they're far more advanced than we are and, and that we're a convenient experiment a bit like us going to the zoo to look at animals they pop by here now and then oh. and have a look how we're getting on very interesting Chris we chat again next week thanks Reedy have a nice weekend and bye everybody Thank see you soon you. bye bye thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the UK the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.